With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Losing Control, a podcast from Sports Illustrated Studios and iHeartRadio. I'm Justin Sua. Losing Control is a podcast about the yips. But on this episode, we're not talking about the yips. We're doing something a little different. When we were developing this show... I knew it was critical that we not only tell a story about the yips and those who experience it, but cover how those who get the yips work to overcome it. And if you've been listening, there's a couple of things that you've heard more than once. Focus on what you can control. Breathe and use your breath to ground you in the present moment. Try to have fun and especially try to laugh. Today we're talking about two of those things. Meditation, or using your breath to ground you in the present, and the power of humor. In the first half of this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Amishi Jha, a cognitive neuroscientist who studies attention and the power of meditation in her lab at the University of Miami. The author of Peak Mind, Dr. Jha will walk us through some of what she's learned about meditation and attention control and introduce us to two practices that you can begin today. In the second half of the episode, You'll meet Jennifer Ocker, a behavioral scientist, and Naomi Bagdonis, an innovation strategist and media coach. Jennifer and Naomi teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and recently wrote a book called Humor Seriously, Why Humor is a Secret Weapon in Business and Life. We'll talk about the power of humor 
and the benefits of a mindset of levity. And you might be surprised how something so simple can have such a profound impact on your life and your work. And that's important because whether you're battling the yips or just trying to get through life, it's often the simple things that can make the biggest difference. This is Losing Control, a podcast about one of the strangest phenomena in sports, the yips, or when an athlete or elite performer suddenly finds themselves unable to do the thing that they do better than almost everyone else on the planet. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. But if you want the full experience, head back to episode one. Losing Control is a podcast told through conversations with athletes, coaches, neuroscientists, and more, and it's in order. Each episode features a first-hand perspective that contributes a piece to the puzzle that is the yips. Along the way, you'll learn about some of the challenges that high performers face and the mental work that enables them to do what they do. Not only that, you'll hear how you can incorporate these tools, strategies, and mindsets into your own life. Because it's not just about losing control, it's about getting it back. So let's get started. My name is Dr. Amishi Jha. I am a neuroscientist, professor of psychology, and author of Peak Mind. What is cognitive neuroscience? So cognitive neuroscience, let's just break it down. Cognitive having to do the way we think and process information. And neuroscience, the study of the structures and functioning of the human brain, it's a connecting what is known about information processing with brain biology. In other words, it's how our thinking is instantiated within the hardware of this thing we carry around on our neck, our brain. Now, there's a story of yours I love. This was back when you were at the University of Pennsylvania. You're attending an academic lecture, and in the Q&A session, you ask a question about a negative brain and a positive brain, and you're appalled by the answer. Can you please tell us that story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We've got to travel back in time, though. This is probably 2004 or five, really early days for me, even in my role as a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania, as you mentioned. And this was at a moment just to, again, place it where I personally, as a scientist who studied attention in my own lab, was experiencing sort of a crisis of attention for many reasons. I had a young child. My husband was in grad school. I was running a, this high power lab at a very stellar institution, excited to be there, et cetera. But I was really feeling like my own mind was sort of slipping away and my well-being was slipping away. So that's sort of my mindset. So I go to this lecture by a dear colleague of mine, a world-renowned, really eminent neuroscientist named Richie Davidson. And now his his expertise is in emotion research. So as you just described, he puts up these two images, and this is at the end of a very long sort of seminar, but he sort of ends with this note and shows these two images of functional MRI brain recordings of brain activity. One is of him in his lab having induced participants into a positive mood. So you do this by things like playing happy music. People are reminded of their happiest memories. Just anything it takes to really induce that really strong feeling of positive, what we call affect or emotion. And then on the other side, he showed us an image of people induced in a negative mood, done kind of comparably with negative music or kind of music that brings you down, memories that are personally difficult and negative. And his point was really just that if when you compare those two brain images side by side, they look quite distinct from each other. There are different brain states. They activate different brain circuitry. And it was a really important point. 
when I saw that, <laughs> I kept thinking, you know, how do I get that negative brain to look like the positive one? Because I was frankly thinking of my own life. So the question I asked at the end of his lecture, all the questions were actually done at that point. I was sort of the last one left. I was sitting in the back of the room and I kind of called out to him like, how do you get the negative brain to look like the positive one? And he responded in a way, as you said, that kind of shocked me and made me a little appalled. What he said when I asked him the question of how do you get a negative brain to look like a positive brain was meditation. And it was this short answer he gave. And the reason I was so shocked was because at that point, we didn't use a term like meditation in neuroscience lectures. It had, I'd never heard it in the context of a serious scientific lecture before. And it kind of woke me up, like, what is he talking about at that point? You know, now, of course, he runs a, a giant institute that studies meditation, like my own lab. But at that moment, he was not sort of out in the open regarding that research. So we had a long opportunity to talk afterwards, and I learned a lot about the kind of research he was doing. But it was quite a wake-up moment. I mean, I sometimes describe it as like the equivalent of what it would feel like for astrophysicists to be told about astrology, kind of like, what in the world are you talking about? You're not in the right place. What do you have to say to listeners out there who might feel like meditation simply isn't worth their time? I myself was a skeptic. And it's a little bit deeper than just a skepticism regarding uh, its role in serious neuroscience. It actually came from a deeper skepticism from my own cultural background. I'm an Indian woman. I grew up seeing meditation in my family's spiritual and religious life. In fact, some of my earliest memories are seeing my dad practicing meditation every morning. Just, you know, he'd be showered and dressed and, and sitting there with his eyes closed before he'd head to his high power job as an executive. So this was something I knew, but I never really thought it was for me. I was like, that's great, that's for them, but not really me. And I had not seen any evidence or indication that this is something that should be taken seriously. But the reason I'd say it, I've changed my mind, well, is frankly because of the nature of the evidence base at this point. Now, what is meditation maybe a, a place to start when we talk about why it should be worthy of consideration? And I'll just speak to it from the brain science perspective. When I hear that term now, having studied it in my lab for almost two decades, it means something quite different than it did that moment that Richie Davidson said the word to me. When I hear it now, meditation to me is engaging in specific mental practices to cultivate specific mental qualities. It's a form of brain training. So before we go on, this is something that I've always wondered about. Is there a difference between mindfulness and meditation? Ooh, I'm so glad you asked that question. So is there a difference between mindfulness and meditation? Now, the way that I think of meditation is as an umbrella category, a broader category, sort of like the term sports. If I say sports, you're like, okay, I get it. I get what sports are, of course, especially for this podcast and you, Justin. But think about the Olympics. Sports is not going to cut it when it comes to specific elite performance and what it means to train, what it requires to train to be an Olympic-level gymnast, very different than being an Olympic-level golfer. So there are multiple forms of meditation in the same way there are multiple types of sports. We can have compassion meditation, which the practices we engage in are to cultivate a, a stronger sense and connection to the suffering of others and acting on behalf of reducing that suffering. Or transcendental meditation, which is about engaging in practices to 
connect with a sense of transcendence, something beyond the self. And mindfulness training is yet another specific category of meditation practice. And what it is highlighting is paying attention to our present moment experience, being in the here and the now, without judgment or editorializing or emotionally reacting to the present moment. It sounds so simple, be in the present. But as many of us know, it's not easy. Why is that? And how does meditation help us focus our attention? I think you're right. It sounds pretty simple. Like, well, just pay attention to your attention. Know what the heck's going on so you can kind of see where you're at and then adjust accordingly. It sounds like such a nice, easy to do thing, but it is so challenging in many ways. And in fact, the reason it's challenging is because our default in terms of the way the brain functions is not to orient to our own mind in that way. We aren't usually taking sort of a distanced observational perspective toward what's happening in our mind. When we feel that there's stress and demand, we're so in it and so fused with it that we can't step away to actually see, ah, look at that. I'm actually overwhelmed right now. I'm actually emotionally dysregulated. I'm so agitated. Maybe I shouldn't in this moment press send on the email, or maybe I should wait to have the meeting with this person until I feel like I have much more control over the thoughts and points I want to make. But that's exactly it. If you are able to watch your own mind and body in this way, you have many more choice points on how you're going to respond, what you're going to do next. And it does give you a sense of sort of agency in your own life so that you're not so compelled by the mindset that you're in. So I'm listening to you say that. In my mind, I'm thinking, yes, yes, that is exactly what it looks like. And then another part of me is saying, okay, so how do I get better at doing that? Like, what can we do to practice and to get better at being more mindful and, and being able to choose our response as opposed to just react? Right. I mean, I think the first thing to even begin such a journey is to see the value in doing it to see that when we are aware of our own mind and our own behavior, we're much better able to calibrate, recalibrate, adjust. Just knowing that is, is a really good conceptual starting point. And then accepting also that knowing that is not enough. There is something you have to do. And you gave the keyword practice, right? So there's different ways that people consider how they might practice this. One approach is Practice being in the environment that is extremely demanding, something that in military training is called stress inoculation training. Do a very highly demanding thing so that you're used to operating in that environment. In the athletic context, it would be preseason training so that you're getting ready for the competition season. And I think that those are really useful ways to think about just getting acclimated to these circumstances. But I'll tell you something, what we learned from our engagement with groups like actually preseason athletes and pre-deployment soldiers or soldiers going through readiness training is something that was quite kind of bad news, which was that these training activities that are intended to prepare the individuals for the demand that will be coming next, actually the training activities themselves were depleting attention. So what I mean by that is when we partnered, for example, with the University of Miami's football team, what we wanted to do is see what would happen to attention over the course of preseason training. Very demanding period of time. They're practicing rigorously with 
drills and, and physical conditioning. And, and there many of them are still taking summer classes, a very demanding period of time. And then at the end of that training period, they go to camp that determines sort of what their season might look like in, in terms of their individual performance and role on the team. So we tracked football players over a four-week interval. We actually brought them to the lab. We tested their attention in many different ways and their mood and their stress levels, et cetera. And then four weeks later, we asked them to come back and do the same thing. And intervening within those weeks was a very high demand interval. And what we found was that everybody, the entire team's attention was worse and mood declined. So that was kind of an eye-opener. When we've done this with pre-deployment soldiers, same thing. Four to eight weeks of pre-deployment training or some type of readiness training intended to best prepare service members, it itself will cause mood to decline and attention to decline. Even for undergraduates, we see this. So that the beginning and end of the semester, performance is worse, mood is worse, and then you got to take final exams. Or in the business context, a highly demanding, so you know, working with groups like accountants and other people that have cyclical sales cycles, high demand intervals deplete attention and suppress mood. So this one approach of prepare people by having them practice it doesn't seem to work in terms of protecting attention. We've got to do something else. So the second approach is, as you said, practice in a different way. Practice by training attention. And what we introduce to all of these groups is mindfulness training as a sort of suite of attention training practices to see if it would protect against decline in attentional performance, mood, and, and even performance in terms of operationally relevant performance for military service members, for example. Does it actually help them be better soldiers, even though they're experiencing a highly demanding interval? And I'll tell you, over and over again, what we found was that people engaging in as little as four weeks of mindfulness training 12 to 15 minutes of daily mindfulness practice over that four-week interval, they were protected in terms of their attention. It didn't decline. It stayed stable over time, even though the demands were increasing and protracted. And their mood stayed stable over time. Same thing with the football team. Those that received mindfulness training and practiced it stayed stable over time in terms of their attention and their mood. If somebody is sitting here listening and they're thinking, okay, that sounds like me. I'm stressed. I'm in a high-stress environment, I'm suffering, my performance is suffering, my attention is all over the place. What do I do about it? I think that's the question I ask myself, frankly. Uh, And I think that's the question that many of the populations that we work with, whether it is special operations forces or professional athletes or undergraduates or medical and nursing trainees or business professionals that are about to launch a new company or a new venture, this is the exact same thought that arises in our mind. I want to do something about it. I want some action or ability to make myself effective, even in the face of stress. So that's, we can definitely talk about that, but I wanted to just mention, because there may be other people listening that are like, I don't agree with this. Stress activates me. Stress makes me at my best. I'm at my peak performance when I feel a little bit stressed. And you know, frankly, that was a challenge I got pretty early on in our early days working with the Marines I remember this very, this big brawny Marine, like kind of challenging me in the middle of one of my briefings, like saying, ma'am, I don't agree. Stress is good. Stress is helpful. And my argument was actually, no, that stress can actually be problematic, but he was 100% correct. And this is because stress 
just like performance can be on a continuum. We can have low stress, medium stress, high stress, and there's a whole range of stress that we can experience. And it ends up that there's this very lawful relationship. In fact, it's one of the only things that we would say is a lawful and law within psychology, something called the yerkes dotson law, that says that there is a a lawful relationship between what happens with our perceived stress, the level of perceived stress, and our performance. That's the Yerkes-Dodson law, Y-E-R-K-E-S-D-O-D-S-O-N. Moving on. And for people that are listening to our, our, our us right now, just to visualize it, think of it as on the x-axis of a graph, just two lines, you've got stress, low to high. And on the y-axis, you've got performance, low to high. So the lowest amount of stress and the lowest performance are right on that, right on the point where they both meet. And the shape of this relationship between performance and stress is an inverted U. So take the letter U, just turn it upside down. So now you can kind of picture it in your mind. As stress increases, as you get more and more stressed, you're on the upside of that rising up of the inverted U to a point at which you are at a peak peak so that a specific amount of stress is going to result in sort of optimized performance. That's awesome. That's something we call U stress, the letters E and U in front of the word stress. All of that suggests that when the pressure is low, we're not going to perform all that well. But as we turn up the dial on our sense of pressure and stress, performance increases till we get to that point that that Marine who had challenged me was talking about. There's a certain amount of stress at which performance is at its peak. But if we push past that level of perceived stress, we'll start falling on the downslide of that inverted U so that more and more, as more and more stress is experienced, performance will get worse and worse. And there's kind of another important thing to keep in mind, which is the conversation I ended up having with that whole group of Marines that I was briefing, which is that even if there is a peak amount of stress that you experience that results in your sense of optimized performance, just that sweet spot, if that same level of stress is experienced over a protracted period of time, you know, not just a day or two or a week, but weeks and weeks and months on end, you are no longer going to be performing at your best. You're going to start sliding into distress. I just wanted to highlight that point, Justin, just to say that these relationships are known and very well studied. And kind of back to your question regarding what can we do about it, that is actually the pursuit that we went on in my lab where we studied many different things to see what might protect against this stress-related decline that we saw in attention when people experienced weeks and weeks of high demand and high stress. And out of all the things that we looked at, the only thing that consistently and reliably and statistically changed attention to protect it against stress-related decline was mindfulness training. And so the question shifted to how do we get this to more people so that no matter your profession, if you are experiencing high stress, you can engage in these practices. It's accessible to you so you can benefit. I appreciate you bringing some concepts into the conversation that may be new to many of our listeners. And before we move on, you mentioned a zone of optimal stress. Is there a way to reliably find that zone? How do we determine the level of stress that's good for us and identify where we begin to slip into overwhelm. Well, I mean, maybe I'd flip the question on its head. I would say all of us know what that is. And it really is subjective. 
So that's a very important point. There's no objective amount of demand that results in a specific experience of stress because it varies based on who we are, our life experiences, the particular condition that our mind is because of life events, our upbringing. There's so many factors. And I was just, it was funny. I was talking to my, uh, my daughter about this. She's 15. And she was sort of asking me, you know, when I go and give speeches in front of lots of people, don't I get nervous? You know, I completely understand that. But through the course of my career, I've had many opportunities to give public lectures. And I, I actually don't feel that stressed out by it. Maybe initially it was a little bit of a stressor. Maybe I'm oriented toward not having a problem giving public presentations. But it's not the actual act of giving a talk that would be stressful. It's my experience of it. It's the translation of it and the instantiation of it in my mind and body. So just to say, we all know what it feels like to have that dipping into overwhelm experience. And we also know what it feels like when it's the right amount of challenge, when we're in the zone, so to speak. So I don't think that's something we need to look for. Maybe the question we want to pursue is how do I get myself so that regardless of the demand, my mind is sort of armored, I'm mentally armored to be able to bring myself back into a zone where it feels like I'm functioning still at my peak, even if the objective demands are quite rigorous and extreme. And that is where I think the mental training really makes a difference so that we're orienting to the experiences we have in a way that keeps us in the more regulated zone without experiencing overwhelm where it starts now compromising attention. We'll be back with Dr. Amishi Ja after this. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel... It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape. You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos 
in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Losing Control, and I'm Justin Sua. I'm speaking with Dr. Amishi Jha. Let's get to the thing itself. What is a practice or some practices that are particularly useful for people who frequently experience high stress? Yes, there are actually this the whole suite of four main practices that I would say are worth checking out. And, you know, I'll describe some of them now, but if people want to dig in a little bit deeper, I get into that in, in my book. In fact, the whole motivation for writing Peak Mind was to take what we learned from our laboratory studies and make them so that more people could benefit from them. So just wanted to mention that if, if it feels unsatisfying or not enough, there's more you can read about it. But the key, as we've been talking about, if we want to intervene with regard to the sort of ballistic direction of our mind, which may be reactive, which may be overwhelmed, which may be ruminating, which may be catastrophizing, whatever it is, if we want to intervene in that kind of ballistic mindset, we've got to, first of all, know it's happening. We've got to be aware and notice, ah, look at that. I'm in the grips of anger or worry or whatever it is that you're experiencing. And for that, we have to train. So one of the practices that, that I offer is something called the find your flashlight practice. And I, and I call it that because in many ways, we've really dug into what attention is. But one way I think about attention is that it's sort of like a flashlight, like an actual physical flashlight, a torch, depending on the part of the world that you live in. And what I mean by that is if you're in a darkened room, can't see anything, or on a darkened path, a flashlight is a super duper handy tool because wherever it is that we shine that flashlight, we'll get crisper, clearer, more detailed information about that part of space. And using it, we can kind of sample our environment and maneuver to whatever we need to do, whether it's get get to the right part of the path to deal with whatever we're doing walking around at night, or if you're in a darkened room, figure out where the door is to leave. It's a very handy thing to have. Same thing with our attention. Attention, just like that flashlight, illuminates different aspects of our conscious experience. Where we pay attention matters. It changes the, the amount of information that we get. 
everything else that we're not paying attention to is sort of darkened down. So now if you're in the middle of some kind of very extremely reactive moment, most of the time you have no idea where your mind is. You are lost. You have no what we call meta-awareness, awareness of our present moment attention. And so the find your flashlight practice is the opportunity to very, very efficiently learn and get more familiar with cultivating the capacity to know where our mind is, know where our attention is, and control it in some sense to get it back on track to where we want it to be. In this practice, and it's a very fundamental or foundational practice of all kinds of mindfulness training programs. So you first thing you want to do is kind of just like any other activity, think of the parallel with what you want to do when you're doing some kind of physical exercise. You want to set the stage so that you're best supported to do it. You've got the right gear and right equipment for, for mindfulness practice. You don't need anything external. You've got your mind and your body. You're in good shape. That's all you really need. But try to find a comfortable, quiet space and then really make the intention to set a timer so that you have a few minutes where you're going to do this in a formal way. You're not just going to say, oh, I'm going to be mindful right now. You're going to exercise and train for mindfulness. And the first thing we do when we're doing this is sit comfortably. I would say, you know, you want to take this body posture that really gives the sense of what you're trying to achieve. Like I would say upright, not uptight. You're not going to be overly rigid, but you're really embodying sort of a dignified confident, attentive orientation. And then you're going to check out the fact that this entire time in your life, in your days, and particularly in the moment that you're doing this practice, you're breathing. Your body is sitting and breathing. It's there. You're not controlling the breath. You're just checking into that part of your present moment experience. And so breath is a really helpful anchor in this moment to just have a, a specific thing that we're going to focus on. So we notice ourselves, our bodies breathing. And then we're going to really be tuning into what feels most vivid tied to our breath. Is it the coolness of air moving in and out our nostrils or our abdomen moving up and down? Whatever it is for you, that's going to be the target for your attention for the next few moments of the practice. So you want to think of it as taking that flashlight of your attention and shining it on that breath-related sensation. Again, you're just observing it. The thing is happening. You're just attending to it by shining that flashlight of attention on it. And then you do this for a few moments. You know, you're just intending to keep attention right there on that breath-related sensation. The second step is to notice, where is my mind right now? Where am I? Am I actually paying attention to breath-related sensations? Or have I wandered away, meandered away to other thoughts or feelings or distractions in my environment? So focus, attention on the breath. Notice, where's my mind? And the third step is redirect. If you are off track, redirect that attention, point it back to those breath-related sensations. And, you know, just describing this short practice, the reason I call it find your flashlight is because that's what we're doing. We're doing three steps. Focus, notice, redirect, and repeat. Focus, notice, redirect, repeat. And a lot of my military colleagues will call this sort of the push-up for the mind that, oh, you're giving us reps to do. We can do that. And doing this over and over again, we know will strengthen our ability to direct attention willfully. Not so much about the breath. We're not trying to be Olympic level breath followers, but now you're in the middle of a conversation or in the middle of some very important, you know, athletic performance moment or just in your daily life trying to write an email and you just can't get your head where you want it to be. 
focus, that's the intended target, notice, where's my mind right now? And then with the kind of comfort and control, redirect it back as you will. So all those steps are important. The focusing is important. The noticing, the finding of the flashlight is important. And then the redirecting of it is important. It ends up that all three of those steps tap into three of the main systems of attention. So we're sort of supporting ourselves to strengthen all aspects. Find your flashlight. Focus, notice, redirect, repeat. Here's the second practice. So that's the sort of longer practice, and that's the one we ask people to build up to about 12 minutes a day. The hip pocket version of this is something I call the stop practice. And that's just, you're going to, in the moment, and I, I always say, you know, anytime you're stopped, stop light, stop sign, waiting for the elevator, whatever you're doing in your daily life, you can do the stop practice. And, and it's really just, the first step is stop, in some sense, whatever you're doing, just stop what you're doing. You're, you're usually standing in some context. Take a breath. So now instead of minutes and minutes of focusing on the breath, just one conscious breath. So that's S for stop, T, take a breath. Observe, that's that noticing component. Notice what's happening around you, within you. That's the O, S, stop, T, take a breath, O, observe. And then P, proceed, move on with your life. So it can be a breath to a few breaths, but it's a mini version of that find your flashlight practice. And what happens after you've done that is you've got your flashlight back in your hand. Your attention is now with you. You know where you are. So the next moment can be dealt with more efficiently and more successfully. There are a lot of athletes out there who practice mindfulness meditation. They'll do it before games. They'll do it after games. And if you watch closely, you'll even find athletes pausing to take a deep breath and to practice mindfulness in the moment, in between serves, in between sets, in between an event, just to settle, to ground themselves, and to redirect their focus to the most important thing at that moment, the here and now. We'll be back with Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdonas after this. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? 
This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Justin Sua, and this is Losing Control. Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdonis are the authors of Humor Seriously, why humor is a secret weapon in business and life. What might surprise you is that they both teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, which is no laughing matter. But that little joke actually points to a key idea, that the distinction we've created between spaces where we're serious and spaces where we let ourselves laugh is artificial and actually does us a disservice. To kick off our conversation, I asked Naomi to talk about the humor cliff which refers to the age when we begin to lose our sense of humor. When you ask people this really simple question, did you smile or laugh a lot yesterday? People pretty consistently say yes at age 16, 18, 20. And then right around age 23, people start saying no. We go to work and we think that we have to be serious people to be successful and we fall off this humor cliff. And by the way, this data is really striking. Things start to look up again around age 80, which is horrifying because the average life expectancy is 78. Here's Jennifer. Yeah. So, you know, it's really right around the time when you do go to work. And what we find is that people believe when they go off to work that in order to do serious work, be respected, gain status, that you actually should not use humor or levity and that in fact humor and levity betray the mission of being serious and in fact what we're finding in the actual data is that you can do very serious things in fact you can do them better when you don't take yourself so seriously and one of the things here is that when you can laugh at your faults 
it becomes easier to overcome them. And we find this to be particularly true with high-performing athletes or business leaders or even just really effective parents and humans. Naomi, can you talk about how this works? There's this belief that when things get hard, when work gets serious, the best way to overcome is to be serious. And in sports and at work, when we're not performing how we want, it can feel like the best way to overcome that is to sort of bear down and do the work. And we often find that the opposite is really most effective. So one story that we heard in our research for the book that we wrote is from the 2014-15 Warriors season. So Steve Kerr's first year as head coach of the Golden State Warriors, and the team had started the season off strong, but they had suffered this series of crushing losses to the Grizzlies, the Lakers, and the Clippers. And so one day on the way to practice, all of the players are on the bus. The bus unexpectedly starts driving in the opposite direction of the practice courts. So everyone is pretty confused. And Steve sort of has this grin on his face. He knows what's going on. The confusion only grows when the bus stops in front of this table tennis club. And Steve gets off the bus. He says, all right, everyone, pile in. And all the players go into this table tennis club. And for the next couple of hours, no one touched a basketball. All they did was have this heated, spirited, fun session of table tennis. And the players talked about how there was sort of this mood shift. We're not focusing on the thing that's been hard. We're not focusing on the game, we're focusing on just playing together. And after this table tennis tournament, Steve called the team together for a meeting. And it was in the back room of that small table tennis joint in Oakland that the players had one of their most candid conversations about what wasn't working, why they were losing, and what their vision was going forward. And one of the players later told us that it was this experience and the atmosphere that Steve created, this, this atmosphere of joy, of laughter, of not taking yourself too seriously, even through something that is so serious, was what helped create this new form of camaraderie and turn the team around. And then, of course, the Warriors would go on to one of their best seasons in the NBA since 1975. And, and of course, we all know the story from then on. But it was really this moment of recognizing things are hard, people are down, how do we turn this around in a way that that incorporates some levity and helps us move forward? I love hearing about Coach Kerr and how he works. And we've all seen the Warriors dominate this past decade. So Jennifer, what do you say to listeners out there who are like, this all sounds great. I'm on board, but I'm just not funny. When I try to make a joke, people frown, they shake their heads, it feels awkward, I don't know what to say, you name it. What do you say to the person who doesn't think that they have a funny bone in their body? Right. So the first, like the secret really is, is to understand that this is not about being funny. It's about being human. We know how to do this. And one of the insights on how to get back more human is to actually just know your humor style. What Naomi and I have done in the last decade of work is basically analyze globally what people say are their humor styles. So there's four types. One is a stand-up and they're bold and irreverent and they're unafraid to ruffle a few feathers to get a laugh. 
Then there is the sniper. They're edgy, sarcastic, dry, the masters of the unexpected dig. Then there is the magnet, and they are gregarious and charismatic. They're maybe a little bit more physical with their humor, a little bit more in the limelight. They tend to be extroverted. And then there's the sweetheart, and they are earnest and honest and understated, and their goal in using humor is often to uplift others. And so each of these styles have strengths and each of them have risks. What's interesting to know is that uh, two of these styles, the sweetheart and the magnet style, tend to uplift others and bring people together. We often say that people want to be valued members of a winning team on an inspired mission. And those particular humor styles do a really good job of uplifting others and making people come together to really feel like they are in a team. Especially in the workplace, how do you gauge whether or not humor is right for a particular context or environment? What we teach our students, it's really not necessarily about the overuse of this muscle, so to speak, but it's actually better understanding when and why it's useful. So the students in our class, for example, report after taking the class that they're better able to read the room, to know when it's going to be actually quite useful, and, and to really understand which types of humor are going to be useful in um, different situations. So I'll give you an example. Naomi has learned over time, you know, to basically shift her style based on the goals in a certain meeting, who's in that meeting, etc. And so, Naomi, I don't know if you want to talk more about it, but I think that ability of understanding how to read the room and also shift your style and know why you're using humor becomes so important. Yeah, I think this is such an important point, and it's one that doesn't seem intuitive. People think, okay, I've got my sense of humor. I either bring it with me or I don't. It's either on or off. And this is really not the case. It's so important for people to recognize what's your home style and how can you shift based on the context and based on your strategic goals. So Jennifer mentioned when I was early in my career, I was in my mid-20s and I was designing and facilitating these workshops for groups of executives. So I would often be in the room with people 20 years my senior and predominantly more male than me. In that context, if I lean too heavily on magnet and sweetheart style humor, if I'm too goofy and silly and irreverent, people are going to code that as lower status. But if instead I use sniper style humor, if I'm sharp and witty and direct and a bit more biting with my humor, people will actually code that as higher in status. And so that's the style that I use in a context where I'm perhaps the lower status person in the room. And, and therefore, I can do what's called punching up. I can make fun of people of, of higher status. Now, on the other side, when you're the most senior person in the room, so let's say when Jennifer and I are, are in the classroom teaching at Stanford, and in that context, we're the authority figures, we don't want to be using teasing humor with our students. We want to really be leaning into magnet and sweetheart style humor that's going to be uplifting and that's going to bring people together. So it's it's really recognizing what is the context, what's my strategic goal, and therefore what type of humor is going to work best for me here. We've talked about teams, but what about when you're alone? How can you use humor when you're on your own? There's one exercise that our students love, and it's actually just going throughout the day and noticing, because one of the big things is this isn't about being funny, right? This is just about noticing truths in the world. 
And that simple training of seeing truths and then, you know, those truths are the things that actually oftentimes make you smile. So we ask our students just to write down a few truths that they see each day. And it's in that mechanism that they start to see small moments of levity that they would not have otherwise seen. So it's much easier than you think. I want to ask about the science. Naomi, what's happening in the brain when we're laughing, especially if we're stressed out? Yeah, neurologically and chemically, it is one of our most powerful assets to get through these stressful times. So you asked about the neuroscience. When we laugh, our brains release this cocktail of hormones. We release endorphins, so that gives us, you know, we feel more energized, more able to tackle difficult things. And really importantly, we lower our cortisol and our epinephrine. So even the anticipation of laughter, not even laughing, but just knowing that you will be able to have a laugh with your colleagues has been shown to decrease cortisol by 39% and epinephrine by 70%. And these are sort of the fight or flight hormones that we have, right? So the result is that we feel safer, we feel calmer, we feel less stressed. And when we are in those mindsets, when our stress is lowered, we're also able to access our highest modes of thinking, We're able to be most creative. We're able to be most decisive. We're able to perform at the highest levels when we have that laughter and when we have those hormones firing in our brains. So humor has all of these benefits, and I would venture that most of us probably do enjoy laughing, even or especially when we're stressed out. Jennifer, can you talk about how it's sometimes the simple things, the things that are right in front of us that are sometimes the most impactful. Why do we tend to miss them? So sometimes the, sometimes the things that are, you know, the most simple and mundane things that are in front of us all of the time and are free are actually the most impactful, but we don't use them that much um, because we get in our heads so easily. It's hard to kind of like step outside and actually notice what makes life meaningful. Just think about the people that you like to spend your time with. How often do you find yourself laughing generously with them? We would, we would bet the answer is a lot. In the book, you write beautifully about how your mom's time as a hospice volunteer has informed your work on humor. Can you talk about this? And for listeners who may not be familiar, hospice care is for people who are near the end of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. So my mom is a teacher, but she also, um, she has these side hustles uh, when I was growing up, one of which was working extensively for hospice. And so one thing that I learned at an early age was what did people wish for in their last days of life? Because it was her job to see if she could make those wishes come true. And I remember talking to her about what people wish for when they did have regrets or still needed something. And one of the things they often mentioned is, I wish I laughed more. I wish I didn't, I wish I just felt more joy and didn't take myself so seriously in my life. And this is something that they're mentioning in their, one of the most serious moments of their life. And I always, that struck me as as profound. And more recently, one of the things that's become even more apparent is that this idea of a mindset of levity in work and, and play doesn't just mitigate that one particular regret, but it actually 
relates to and mitigates the these other patterns, these other kind of regrets that people mention. One, they mention often that they wish they had been bolder and took more risks, traveled more, you know, left the status quo more. And what we find is those with a sense of humor, not taking themselves so seriously, are better able to take those bigger, bolder risks because, you know, diffusion is often eased. Uh, diffusion of tension is, is often eased when you're in that mindset. Another one I remember was authenticity. They wish that they were more, had been more authentic. And what we find with our executives and students is that when they better understand their own humor style and are looking at life on the precipice of a smile, they actually behave in more authentic ways. The other one is presence. You know, people mention, I wish I just, I appreciated the small moments more, you know, holding hands with my grandchild or, you know, just saying I love you. And one of the things we find in our, our work on humor is that you have to be more present because you're noticing these truths in the world and these opportunities to uplift others. And then the last is love. People wish they had the chance to say, I love you one more time, which is maybe the biggest regret. And what we find is that when humor exists, love is not far behind. And so we feel very strongly about these ideas around humor, not just for making you more effective in athletics or business or whatever you're doing, but also in life and having a more meaningful life. The next episode of Losing Control is the last episode of Losing Control, at least for now. And whether it's your first episode or you've been with us since the beginning, thank you so much for listening. Next time, we're looking squarely at mental health with a clinical psychiatrist, and we're also checking back with the one and only Rick Ankiel. That's up next on Losing Control. A sincere thank you to our guests, Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdonis, authors of Humor Seriously. Jennifer and Naomi both teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And Dr. Amishi Jha, a professor of psychology at the University of Miami where she also serves as the Director of Contemplative Neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded in 2010. She is the author of Peak Mind. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to rate and subscribe. I'm Justin Sua, your host, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Justin Sua. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-S-U-A. You can also check me out on the Increase Your Impact podcast. Losing Control is a podcast from Sports Illustrated Studios and iHeartRadio. Original music by Jerome Sua. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. This episode was fact-checked by Zoe Mullick. At SI Studios, Max Miller is supervising producer, and Brandon Getchis and Matt Lipson are executive producers. At iHeartRadio, Sean Titone is our executive producer. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast does not provide medical advice, and nothing you hear on this podcast is intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical consultation, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast.
Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.